today on Public Sector Perspectives, as part of a series of interviews to mark United Nations Public Service Day, we're talking to Ben Rimmer, who's an Associate Secretary in the Victorian Department of Families, Fairness and Housing, and the CEO of Homes Victoria. As the leader of Homes Victoria, Ben's responsible for services that provide more than 116,000 Victorians with the security and stability of a home. Homes Victoria manages Victoria's social housing portfolio. That includes public housing stock, as well as community housing, crisis accommodation, transitional accommodation and affordable housing. Homes Victoria is also responsible for the delivery of the Victorian Government's new Big Housing Build, a $5 billion program announced in 2020 that will create 12,000 new homes across the state over the next four years. 9,000 of those 12,000 new homes will be social housing, and that will increase the number of social housing homes from 80,000 to almost 90,000 units in four years, which will be a dramatic increase in the rate of social housing construction in Victoria. Housing is one of the most complex and important areas of public policy, and we could spend a whole program talking about some of those challenges. But Ben Rimmer is also someone with a unique perspective on public administration. He's worked at senior levels right across the Victorian and Commonwealth public services, including the departments of Premier and Cabinet and the departments of Prime Minister and Cabinet, working on social policy, Commonwealth state reform and service delivery. He's also been the CEO of the City of Melbourne, giving him an insight into the challenges and opportunities facing local government. Ben, you're also a fellow of IPA Victoria and IPA National, and you're on the board of IPA Victoria too. So you're clearly someone who believes in the value of the public purpose sector. This interview is being recorded as part of a series to celebrate United Nations Public Service Day. So I'm going to start with a personal question, which is what motivates you to have a career in the public service? And in a more strategic sense, what does the public sector do that markets or the community sector alone can't deliver? Well, thanks, Nick, and, and a really good question. What, what motivates me has always been uh, the idea that we can work together to build a better community and a better society. It's always been for me the case that I aspire to improve the things that I'm part of, and that includes my community, um, and that includes the organisations I work with. And in some cases, that can include the private sector uh, and organisations in the private sector that have a significant impact on people's lives. I mean, if you think about a large telecommunications company or a large airline or something like that, but, but most importantly for me, it's the work of the public purpose sector and the organisations that strive every day to improve people's lives and to improve the world that we live in. Let's talk about some of your work at Homes Victoria. In a previous episode of Public Sector Perspectives, we talked to E. Lee, who leads your area's work on the affordable housing rental scheme, which provides eligible low to moderate income households with access to an affordable rental property for at least three years. What's one of the other areas of work at Homes Victoria that you think has the most potential to make more or better homes available to people most in need? Well, there's just so many different ways you could answer that question, to be honest. And, and that's actually an interesting part of the challenge around housing. There is housing need at many different parts of the, of the spectrum of, of uh, the community. Uh, you talked to Eli um, a few weeks ago about affordable housing and uh, the need for a new way of helping people 
who, to be frank, are struggling to find affordable, reasonable rentals in the private market. And, you know, if you're a nurse who's trying to get a job in Swan Hill and you can't take up that job because you can't find a rental property that's suitable, I mean, that for that person and, frankly, for Swan Hill as a community, that is a big issue, right? So that matters to, to me and to us as an organisation as well as the more traditional area of focus for us, which is making sure we can house people who are experiencing significant disadvantage. Uh, and it, it, it's no secret that there is a very significant waiting list for people seeking access to social housing. And that's very motivating for me and for my team. We're, we're literally striving every day to get more people housed in higher quality housing and putting people into a position where they can uh, create a home and create stability uh, and certainty in their lives that enable them to live, live the lives that they want to live, uh, live in the rest of their um, experience. But look, one, real, uh, one example of that at the really tough end of the spectrum is we are currently rolling out a program called Homes for Families. And this is really a byproduct of COVID and the fact that we had lots of um, chronic, uh, chronically homeless people, rough sleepers in hotels for parts of the pandemic, because that was, to be frank, the, the safest place for, for them to be and for the community in, in a world where we were aspiring to zero COVID. What we discovered through that process was um, something that pretty well known to the homelessness sector, which is that some of the people who were seeking hotel accommodation were actually families with, with young children. And uh, in some cases, quite large numbers of long, young children. Um, you know, we've had people in hotels, you know, a single mum with eight kids or, you know, a couple with six kids, um, you know, those kinds of family, uh, family circumstances. So um, the, the government invested in a program as a result of this experience called Homes for Families. Uh, this is about a $60 million investment uh, in providing not only uh, a house for people to live in, but also the support that people need to go with that house and to make the transition from a life that has... I mean, if you think, if you think about it, you have to be pretty on the edge to have as your best option in the middle of the pandemic for you and your kids, the idea of living in a hotel. Uh, and uh, these are people who, for all kinds of complex reasons, have perhaps experienced some trauma in their lives, um, some complexity in their lives. And uh, so the house is one part of the solution but the support package around that is also a very important part of the solution. So we've, we've now got um, uh, about 170 uh, families who are in the process of being housed, about 400 odd children in that cohort through this program. And to be honest, these are people who in the past might've slipped through the cracks, Nick. Uh, they're people who, uh, you know, previous governments previous incarnations of homelessness programs have more or less said, wow, you know, this is just too complex. 
and we're, we're because of the government's decision making about this, we're in a position where we're now investing in trying to to make a big difference in those people's lives, and and that's going to have a very profound impact for those families and those children. One of the things that strikes me when I look through the wide variety of work that Homes Victoria does is the variety of different groups that you have to engage with. There's tenants, there's potential tenants, there's the construction sector, there's local communities and local government. What are the sorts of public service skills that you look for in people who want to work for in Homes Victoria? And are they different to the sorts of skills that you think the public sector has traditionally developed? Uh, that's an interesting observation. Um, you know, sometimes my kids say to me, what do you do at work every day? And I, I say, you know, I, I make phone calls and I have meetings, um, which at one level is um, the same in many public sector jobs. But uh, Homes Victoria has a unique set of skill requirements and um, and expectations of staff. We do need people who understand how to build a house and how to purchase someone to build a house and how to manage a construction site safely and how to uh, work with the private sector to deliver housing, uh, how to understand the, the profit motives of the private sector and the financing of the development industry and those kinds of things. And we need people who know how to work with, uh, you know, a very vulnerable family who've been sleeping in the back of a car for six months and, you know, ha who have experienced a life of profound trauma. And, and we need both of those in, I don't know, not equal part, but we need both of those in a particular combination. And that's something that I'm, I'm very motivated by. Actually, I'm very proud of that kind of particular skill set and combination of skills that that is required. At one level, that's um, that's no different from the public sector more generally. I mean, we we do in public service need people who understand the commercial world, who understand commerciality, who can look at a spreadsheet and make sense of who's making what money where. Uh, we also need people who are really uh, uh, well attuned to the complexity and diversity of the of the human experience and how do we make that work and in many cases we need both of those things in the same uh, the same kind of package uh, but it is um, you know it's it's not always been the case that all parts of the public service are good at that full variety of uh, of issues and approaches so um, I mean, I guess if you think traditionally, there's a bunch of people in the public service who are more commercial, or kind of the the treasury type commercial division type people, and a bunch of people who are more interested in social policy, you know, the kind of the, the social worker type people, if I can kind of put it in crude terms. And increasingly, we actually need combinations of skills and experience right across that spectrum. A lot of people listening to this discussion will be people who work in the state public sector. How did working in the Commonwealth and local government sectors change the way that you work now that you're back in the state sector? Well, I guess I've always been a believer that diversity and experience matters. I'm lucky enough, I've kind of, I sometimes say that I've got the quinella. I've worked in private sector, not-for-profit sector, and all three levels of government. And I've grown from each of those experiences and you know, you look at a problem from lots of different angles. The Commonwealth tends to underestimate the skill and capability of the state public services. 
uh, and the complexity of the issues that are dealt with every day by the state public services. Um, and particularly, I might say, in the area of uh, the Department of Families, Fairness and Housing, uh, and to some extent, justice and community safety, where the Commonwealth, I think, as a general rule, doesn't really understand the complexity of service delivery in very, um, very disadvantaged, very complex circumstances. So an example of that is the interaction for between the, the National Disability Insurance Scheme and the Justice Scheme and the Housing Scheme and the residual state responsibilities for disability, which are I mean, which are actually very complex every day for a small group of clients who uh, who have some pretty complex and extreme circumstances. Um, and when you're sitting in Canberra, it's hard to see that complexity, perhaps with the exception of, um, I would say this, wouldn't I, my, my former agency of, um, which is now called Services Australia, which kind of understands these things better than most parts of the Commonwealth. So there's that lack of kind of comprehension. And I think having public servants move around between the different service systems really helps with that. Um, it, it's a, you know, it's also the, the case that the state sometimes says to the Commonwealth, oh, you guys don't understand about service delivery. To some extent, that's true. I think it's, um, but I don't think the answer to that is uh, that the Commonwealth shouldn't, uh, shouldn't aspire to understanding about service delivery. I think the Commonwealth should aspire to doing it better and improving over time because those interactions really matter. The interaction between someone who's, uh, you know, perhaps on a Centrelink payment, who's part of the child support system and who's also homeless really does require a, a level of understanding about service delivery at both levels of government. That um, that we should we should own and embrace and and uh, engage with, and then there's a local government perspective as well. You know, the beauty about local government is that you kind of you know, you kind of know every street and every street corner, and and you get a really localized sense of what matters and uh, what can change and the possibilities of a place and a community, and you know, so I think I think that's a a good experience for, to have as a state government bureaucrat. Uh, I think it's a good experience, frankly, to have as a Commonwealth government bureaucrat. And uh, so I, I think my overriding message is diversity of experience really matters. And I would encourage anyone involved in the public purpose sector to have to, to aspire for that diversity of experience. Let's look into that um, Commonwealth state relations world just in detail just for a moment, because it does seem like we're in, at an interesting time in Commonwealth state relations. There's a new government in Canberra. There's a creation of national cabinet to replace the COAG meetings during COVID. The sense during COVID that states were often leading the discussion at national cabinet. Um, there's been some interesting joint actions by the Victorian and New South Wales governments working together in areas like childcare. From your perspective, having worked at all three levels, what's one of the areas that you think would most benefit from a new approach to Commonwealth state relations? Well, there's just so many, right? Um, the truth is that in if you think about pretty much any issue which is really vexing us as a community and as governments, um, almost all of those issues sit on the boundary between Commonwealth and state responsibilities. 
So if you think about rough sleeping, uh, that, that very definitely sits on the boundary between Commonwealth and state responsibilities. If you think about the need to provide better support for people living with mental illness in the community, that absolutely sits on the boundary. If you think about the need to provide better um, housing options for people living with disability on the boundary, if you think about the need to better manage uh, the impact of chronic disease, diabetes and heart disease on the boundary. So um, it's pretty hard to, um, to pick one issue in the middle of all of that. Um, the, the one that I really, you know, if, if I had my tuppence worth, I mean, I think there's some obvious ones that we need to get better at, right? Like health, mental health, uh, the ongoing implementation of the National Disability Insurance Scheme and those kinds of things. The one that I would really love to do better is the interaction between Commonwealth service systems and state service systems for people experiencing very significant disadvantage and, it, and in particular for children experiencing very significant disadvantage. If you think about the work of the child protection system uh, or people experiencing or children and families experiencing profound um, housing instability, you know, they, they are or should be involved in the childcare system, which has Commonwealth funding. Uh, they are or should be involved in the training and employment um, systems, which um, have Commonwealth funding and service delivery. They are almost certainly involved in the Centrelink service delivery system, both um, as the, the parent receiving income support, hopefully, although many don't, and I'll come back to that, but also the, there's family payments that go with having um, responsibility for a, a child. And all of that, uh, in my experience, works very poorly at the moment. That whole interaction works very poorly at the moment. And look, it's probably something that is, um, you know, it, it's more uh, it's more at the three, five, seven percent of the community end of the spectrum rather than the hundred percent of the community end of the spectrum. But these are areas of government uh, involvement where, if we get it right, if we invest early, if we invest with a really strengths-based, medium-term outcomes focus for the the well-being of that family, what we'll see is actually lower service delivery costs into the future, a more equal and inclusive society, um, less disadvantage, uh, and you know a whole range of other valuable benefits. I mentioned um, the Centrelink service system and income support before. You know, one of the things that astounds me is if you go out on the streets of Melbourne right now and interview rough sleepers, as uh, as Tony Nicholson did a few years ago, 50% of those rough sleepers have an active job search requirement um, under Commonwealth policy settings. So if you think about what this means, that, that means that Effectively, in order to get income support payments, um, people who are without a house and who are sleeping rough have to prove to Centrelink every week or fortnight or whatever, and all of these rules are changing at the moment, obviously, but basically have to prove that they are um, you know, meeting their requirements or that they should be excused from meeting their requirements. And if they don't, they fall off payment, right? And so, of course, what that means is many people do fall off payment 
which means that there are, I think the, the stats are that there's up to 10% of people experiencing rough sleeping and homelessness are getting no income support at all. Okay. Uh, so they are literally living off nothing, um, living off charity. And the, you know, in the complexity of their lives, um, the, the challenge of getting back onto payment is so profound that uh, it, it's an insurmountable barrier. And I, I just think that's something that is, well, to be honest, I think it's atrocious. And I think we should um, be, be capable of working together across the Commonwealth and state boundaries to improve that. After COVID, we've heard a lot about the great resignation and a move towards people seeking work that's of value and that delivers purpose. Public policy challenges, as you've described, can seem enormous and never-ending. And in that sort of environment, it is easy to become disheartened or cynical. Just to finish with, what's been one moment in your career where you thought, well, yes, my work has made a difference? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a glass half full kind of a person. So I, I actually find those experiences, you know, more or less every day, if I'm honest about it. Um, and I feel incredibly privileged to be in that position where I can say that about my work. Uh, so, you know, uh, the, the COVID experience involved us employing public housing tenants as community connectors and navigators where we were employing uh, young Somalian women to effectively engage more, more, uh, more creatively with the Somali community in, in particular in public housing, but more generally as well, to keep that community safe and protected during the worst of COVID. That was just brilliant. I've talked about the Homes for Families program and honestly, every time one of those families gets housed, uh, I just get a, you know, a real buzz uh, from the work that we're doing and the work that we're doing in supporting government. But at different points in my career, I've had that same buzz from other experiences. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to spend some time working in Cape York a long time ago and, you know, working with elders and communities up there was incredible. Uh, Working for the Prime Minister's department involved some of that same buzz. Working for different parts of state and local government has had that buzz. So, so I've, I find that uh, that experience uh, in lots of the work that I do, and I really try and encourage my teams to to see that um, that benefit from the work that they're doing and the upside that they're creating in the community because it is, um, it is a great part of being part of the public purpose sector and having that kind of impact. Ben Rimmer, thanks so much for being on Public Sector Perspectives. Thanks very much, Nick. This interview with Ben Rimmer is part of a series of interviews produced by IPA Victoria to celebrate the United Nations Public Service Day, showcasing the work of the public purpose sector in Victoria and the motivation of the people who work in that sector. If you'd like to know more about IPA Victoria's work in this space, then visit our website, vic.ipaa.org.au. And if you'd like to know more about the work of Homes Victoria, go to homes.vic.gov.au. I'm Nick Basto, and thanks for listening.